Last week, um, we went over that set of passages that um, address the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and last week, we talked about the, um, the lawyer who asks the Lord Jesus Christ the question as to what he could do to inherit eternal life. Um, today, we are going to look at the parable itself. Uh, and I'll have the verses on screen, as always. Uh, for this reading, we'll actually use a New Living Translation. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. So there, there's a tendency to, to interpret this passage of scripture, the, this parable, uh, several different ways. And while all of, all of the different interpretations have some merit to them, they all kind of overcomplicate the meaning of the parable when the, the parable's meaning is, is very, very simple. Like For example, the parable has been interpreted as the man who falls victim to the bandits is a sinful person like us. And the priest and the Levite, they represent organized religion. And the Samaritan is seen as a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the inn is seen as a symbol of the church where the saved sinner is nursed back to health. And another way that it can be looked at is that the traveler is someone who becomes a victim of sin. And the priest and the Levite represent fellow believers who profess faith with their mouths but reveal the true nature of their hearts through their actions. And then the Samaritan is once again a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ and who pays a, a hefty price for, for, the, for the traveler. And these interpretations, they, they make good allegories and good lessons at the end, but, but it overcomplicates the, the message of the parable, which is, which is very, very simple. And the, the parable at its, at its heart is about showing compassion to a stranger and the sacrificial love that is required to help them. So let's get a sense of time and place. So the parable takes place on a real road that connected Jerusalem to Jericho. And depending on who you talk to, it's between 17 and 20 miles because some, some historians will say that, well, that the location of Jericho was in ancient times. And then others will say, well, no, we're talking about first century Jericho. So that's where the discrepancy in distance comes about. And the road was known to have caves and rock formations where bandits could hide. And the road was also known as the Red Way or the Way of Blood. And so Jerusalem is about 2,700 feet above sea level, and Jericho is 850 feet below sea level. So that's about 3,500 feet of elevation change in just those 17 to 20 miles. And, and the, the interesting thing is we don't know if this was a parable that was based on, an, on actual incidents or, or not, although the circumstances that take place in the, in the first verse probably hint that incidents like this actually happened on the road. So looking at our first verse, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he encountered robbers 
who stripped him of his clothes and belongings, beat him, and went their way unconcerned, leaving him half dead. And so the New Living Translation, which we used initially, um, does identify this man as, as a Jew while the other translations don't. But if we were in first century um, Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem where, where in, in Judea where uh, this parable was being told, it would have been understood that this man who was traveling on the road was a Jew. And we're told that he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's going down that path, down, descending an elevation into Jericho. We also know from the verse that he's traveling alone. And on a road like this, it was safer to travel in groups. And so this tells us one important thing about this man is that he made an unwise choice, which is going to cost him. Like he knows the road is dangerous, but he takes the risk anyway. And, and maybe he's journeyed this road several times and nothing has happened in the past. But this time, the worst case scenario happens. He's attacked by robbers. He's stripped of all of his clothes. And you'll remember that most people during that time may have only had one piece of clothing to their name. And they've taken all that he owns. They've taken his money. They've, they've taken his belongings. He's beaten. He's probably bleeding. He's barely conscious. Maybe so broken and hurt that just a slight movement is a stabbing pain. He's, he's clearly in need of medical attention. He's helpless. He's hopeless. Left for dead and possibly he feels his life's blood draining out of his body. And, and who knows, maybe if, his, if he can look up, maybe he sees ravens circling overhead just waiting for him to lose consciousness and so that they can start gnawing on his open flesh. And this, this is a man at that time who is probably regretting the decision that he made and he knows that he's not going to last very long out there. And this brings us to our first lesson point. When we embark on a journey, we have to be responsible and we have to be prepared. And so how many of us have chosen unwisely and traveled along a road or along a path and have been completely unprepared for what happened along the way? Or how many of us have devolved into some type of, of sin and it's led us down an unsafe path that just winds way down, down, further and further away from where God wants us to be? And how many of us have often found our, ourselves going where we shouldn't go? And when we give in to, into sin, and we know this, that we're, whether it's gambling or whether it's hatred of someone or whether it's drugs or whether it's pornography or lust or greed or the craving of power or the craving of riches or the craving of prestige and recognition, we all walk this spiraling path that takes us ever downward and away from our Heavenly Father. And the road probably feels good because when you're going downhill, you know that you've got the breeze going, going into your face and it's a cooling breeze and you get that adrenaline rush. But it's a path that's filled with danger that most of us can't handle if we're not prepared. So let's go back to our injured man lying there on the ground. Maybe, maybe he can move his eyes right about now and, and he sees movement on the road and there's a person walking down the road towards him. Now by coincidence, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So Jericho was known as a place where many of the priests lived. And so it's possible that the priest had just finished up some of the holy rites at the temple in Jerusalem, and he was on his way back home. And the priest's responsibility was to offer sacrifices for the people's sins. He's, he's supposed to be a servant of God, and he was expected to be an example of godliness and righteousness. And he would have been well-versed in the Old Testament law and would have made a vow to live his life according to the Old Testament law. And he would have been familiar with Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34, where God says 
The sojourner who sojourns with you shall be to you the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. So this priest knows what the requirements of the law are, and yet when the priest sees this man lying on the road, half dead, it says he passed by on the other side. And the original Greek hints that the priest took just a short glance at the man as he was walking by, then he left the area quickly. And we can speculate maybe why the priest didn't stop to help the injured man. Maybe he thought there are bandits still out there on the road. Or, or maybe he had religious duties to perform in Jericho and he didn't want to be delayed. Or maybe he thought the man was dead because there was a religious law that said a, a person was unclean for seven days if they touched a dead body. And if the priest were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, then he couldn't perform his duties at the temple. And so even though the priest knows the law and the commandments, the priest moves on because his religious duties were more important than anything else, even another man's life. And so the injured, injured man's situation is, it, it hasn't changed, it's no better than when the priest arrived. But now our, our injured man sees someone else coming down the road. A temple assistant, uh, Levite in some other translations, walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. So here we have a temple assistant, and Levites um, often assisted in the temple. Some, some Levites were priests, but not all Levites were priests. Um, all Levites did serve in the temple, and they oversaw the religious rituals and the services at the temple. Um, in some churches, they might be considered deacons. And they assisted the priests and the holy rites in the temple. And it's possible that the lawyer, who we spoke about last week, um, was also a Levite. And the language as it's written here, where it says the Levite walked over and looked at him laying there, indicates that the Levite actually saw our injured man and went in for a closer look, just like the New Living Translation says. But upon seeing this injured man, beaten and bloody, the Levite takes off down the road, again, as quickly as the priest. And both the priest and the Levite would have recited the Shema, which we talked about last week, and they would have recited it every morning and every evening, and they would have said the words, love God and love your neighbor, day in and day out. And yet when the time came to actually put action behind words, they didn't. But we can't look at this as an indictment solely against clergy. And this brings us to our second lesson point. We all have a tendency to behave more like the priest than the Levite. And so this is the reason why we can't look at it as an indictment against the clergy is because deep down we are just like these two men. They represent us. Uh, they represent a fear in all of us of sacrificing something to help someone else. And they also represent the fact that rules and organized religion are not what saves us. And they, they represent the inherent fear that's in all of us for self-preservation of we occasionally puff ourselves up in front of others about, oh, I can do this, I can do that. But when faced with our own personal safety or the safety of someone else, more often than not, we'll choose ourselves. We have a, a tendency to put work and duty over other things and even over other people. And there's just, there's, that's something that society has ingrained within us over the past few decades that even always being busy is a good thing. And always moving in a specific direction is a good thing and don't stop for anything and always striving for a goal is a good thing. But uh, what is the price to pay? Our duty to God is important and working to feed ourselves and put a roof over our heads is important. And by extension though, our duty and our work extends to the care and the ministry of other people. 
such as our family, such as our friends, such as our neighbors. Um, what we receive as the fruits of our duty to God and the fruits of our work and labor, those fruits need to be invested in those who we care about. That's, our, again, our families and our neighbors who are in need. And when society places uh, at, or elevates self over families and Christians begin to buy into that, that's the beginning of the end of the family. Absent fathers, we have career-obsessed mothers, we have neglected children who stare at tablets and TVs and are stuck in daycare and in schools as surrogate parents. And then when Christians start thinking like the world instead of thinking the way God wants us to think, then this is what happens. And psychologists have said over the past few decades that the more we care about things, and things doesn't just mean material possessions that we have, it also means the immaterial things such as a title or a position or a career. The more we care about those things, the less we care about people. And even though psychologists have only latched onto this over the last few decades, this attitude has been going on for a very long time. And in fact, first century Jews hearing this story probably had the same type of attitude. And, and when they looked at the religious elite, they, they weren't surprised that the religious elite with their sense of duty and their sense of law had, left, had just gone on on the road and let this man die, or left this man to die. And if we're there listening, again, listening to this story, at this point, the people, the first century Jews are listening to this story and they're expecting someone else to come along. And they're not expecting someone amongst the religious elite. They're not expecting someone who's wealthy. What they're expecting to see is an ordinary, everyday Jewish guy who will come along and save the day. But that's not what they get. But a Samaritan who was traveling came upon him. And when he saw him, he was deeply moved with compassion for him. So during the time that the Lord Jesus Christ walked the earth, the worst insult imaginable that you can call someone was a Samaritan. It's written in John 8, uh, verse 48, that the Jews said to Jesus, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? And in Luke chapter 9, just a few verses um, from what we're studying now, James and John are actually asking Jesus to call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village that had rejected them. So the Samaritans were considered mongrels half and half-breeds. And when the, the kingdom of Israel fell and was captured by the Assyrian Empire in approximately 720 BC, uh, the Assyrian king had actually taken oh, the Jews and dispersed most of them throughout the Assyrian Empire. And also the king moved people from other parts of the empire into, into Samaria. So eventually there was intermarriage, and with intermarriage you get different ethnicities. And so you have a mixed breed of people. And, but not only were the Samaritans a mixed breed due to race, they, but also religion, because when they intermarried, the people who, who they married with, who weren't uh, Samaritans or, or weren't Jews, brought their own gods into the land. And eventually the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which the Jews ended up destroying in the second century BC. So there's, there's a deep hatred that centered around racial and religious purity. And it carried into Jesus' day. And there was a saying amongst the rabbis of Jesus' day, let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. And in some of their prayers, the rabbis would sometimes end the prayer by saying, and do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. So in the mind of the first century Jews, there, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. 
But the Samaritans, they weren't innocent either. They, they only accepted the first five books of, of the Old Testament. Uh, and so they didn't know or they didn't have an appreciation of the wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs. He, they didn't have an appreciation of the Psalms. They didn't read Daniel or Isaiah or Ezekiel. So they were, they were missing all that. And they twisted the law of Moses and at certain points they twisted biblical history for their own gain. So, so both groups might have been different in terms of ethnicity, um, but they both, they both misinterpreted God's law uh, to the point that they really didn't understand truly what it meant. They thought it was a rules thing instead of a heart thing. So you can imagine the first century Jews, their reaction when Jesus says it, that a Samaritan came upon this injured man. And their reaction probably would have been, well, the Samaritan is just going to finish off the, the job that the, that the robbers didn't do. Or, or, or maybe he's just going to kill this, this injured, helpless Jewish man who's, who's unable to defend himself. And you have to wonder, if you were in the place of this injured man, what are his thoughts going through his head? He sees a Samaritan coming towards him. It's like, well, this guy's probably going to kill me. It's like, or, or maybe, no, 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 just let me die. I don't want to accept your help. You're, you're a Samaritan. Possible because of the hate that was going on between these groups. But when the Samaritan sees this injured man and gets up close and sees that he's injured, the Samaritan, we're told, is moved with compassion. And the Greek word for compassion is spanknizomai. And that means that he actually felt something for this man. He, he connected with this man. He felt pity. He understood and identified and was able to relate to this injured man's situation as was prepared to act to help him. Which brings us to our third lesson point. Whoops, sorry. I was going to show this. I skipped over this part just so you have an idea of where Samaria is. So um, when the king of Assyria invaded um, most of the Jews in Judea were able to stay, but Samaria and parts of the Galilee, they were dispersed throughout the empire, um, which is why the, the peop there was that tension between them um, to the north. And interestingly enough, interestingly enough if, you see, if you see the map here, the Lord Jesus Christ, we know he grew up in the Galilee, um, and he had to pass through Samaria, and that's actually where he began his public ministry in Samaria before moving south. So continuing on, uh, third lesson is salvation came from an unexpected neighbor. Just like we ha some of the people during that time had the misconception that could anything good come from Nazareth or why would the Lord of all creation be born in a feeding trough instead of in a castle or could anything good come from a Galilean named Jesus dying on a cross, on a Roman cross, and he's dying the death of a common criminal. So a Samaritan, the sworn enemy of the Jews, looks upon the injured man, and he doesn't see race, he doesn't see religion, doesn't care that he himself could be robbed and maybe even beaten. He doesn't care that he might be on his way and could be late for whatever responsibilities that he had in Jericho. And, and he doesn't care that touching a dying man might violate religious purity laws. And just like the Lord Jesus Christ, the Samaritan, he didn't worry about touching someone who was considered impure. Jesus touched lepers. He touched the blind. He touched the deaf. He touched the demon-possessed. And love, like the love the Lord Jesus Christ displayed, his type, Jesus' love pounces on all legalism and the religious rules that 
man creates. So what the Samaritan sees is a human being who's in distress. And this is, this is a Samaritan who stopped to help a Jew who was ignored by two fellow Jews. And here's what the Samaritan does. And he went to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them to soothe and disinfect the injuries. And he put him on his own pack animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So notice here what the Samaritan actually does. So he goes to him. He goes to the injured man. He's not afraid to approach him. He closes the distance and actually reaches out personally to help the man. Second, he bandages up his wounds. And maybe he had a spare change of clothes or maybe he had to tear strips of his own clothing uh, that he was wearing in order to bind the man's uh, torn, torn up flesh. Next, what he does, he pours oil and wine on them to soothe and disinfect them. So th these would, th would have been things that he carried with him. These were his personal supplies um, that, that he would have used for his own travel. So he gives freely of what he owns and the supplies that he has in order to ease this man's pain. He puts the man on his own animal, and, and maybe the Samaritan was riding the animal or walking beside it, um, but now he puts this injured man pack animal and walks beside it. So he's sacrificing his own comfort for this injured man. And the next thing he does is he brings him to an inn and it takes care of him. Uh, he brings him to an inn so that he can, so that this injured man can lay down on a bed indoors out of the elements so that he could rest and heal. And we're also told that he took care of him. So this, this means that he stayed up all night tending to this man making sure he was hydrated, feeding him if he was able to eat, changing his bloody bandages for clean ones. And inns during this time weren't known as a, as a place for safety. There could be robbers lurking there. An inn was a place where you can find a prostitute easily. So it could have been a really dangerous place. So not only was a Samaritan caring for this injured man, but he was probably protecting him as well throughout the night. And this took a lot of, of time and a lot of energy. And there's no indication that anyone else helped the Samaritan care for this injured traveler. He did it all by himself. But he does something even more interesting. On the next day, he took out two denarii, two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will pay you in return. So there's some debate as to how much two denarii was actually worth at an inn. Um, so it's two weeks of lodging at an inn up to two months. So that was a, a lot of money that, that, the, um, that the Samaritan gave up to care for this man. And we see here that the Samaritan also tells the innkeeper that he'll reimburse him the cost of any additional care for this man. And the Samaritan should have known that you're dealing with an, in, with an innkeeper, probably maybe the modern day equivalent of a used car salesman. I hope no one is in here. Uh, but he could get conned and say, oh yeah, you know, technology. When inside the innkeeper said, it's like, it, it, only, it, it only costs five, but I'm going to get ten from this guy. So he took that risk, but the, the Samaritan didn't care. This, this, man's, this injured man's well-being was more important than the money that he had. And so this is limitless um, generosity coming from, coming from someone who you would never expect. This is, this is lavishness beyond comprehension. And the, the priest didn't care like that. The Levite didn't care like that. And ultimately, the lawyer who prompted this parable in the first place didn't care like that. Which brings us to our final lesson point. 
he gave sacrificially and involved others. So he didn't just throw money at, at the issue. He took action himself. He personally got involved with it. We as a modern society, we have a tendency to avoid getting involved ourselves, but we'll, we'll throw money at it. Just take my money, just leave me alone. Um, and, but let's, let's, let's put a different perspective on, on things because remember this was written to people 2,000 years ago. So let's, let's try to bring this back in the 21st century. So, so the Samaritan, he interrupts his life and the time that he set aside for himself Instead, he gives his time to a person in desperate need. And that's one possible equivalent to 2,000 years ago. You may not have a lot of money, but you have time. You may not have a lot of material equivalents and material possessions, but you have time. And there's fathers am among you here who, which, which one of you fathers wouldn't be moved when you see a little child lost in a crowd and they're crying? and they don't know where their parents are, which one of you as fathers would stop what you're doing and immediately go to that child and help them get reunited with their parents? Or the moms who are here as well, which, which, one, of, which one of you would not be moved by the sight of a premature baby in, in the neonatal ICU? And most of you moms, w nothing would stop you from putting on a mask and putting on gloves and just going into that room and putting your arms around a little baby that needs human contact. And which one of us wouldn't stop to hold the door open for someone who is older than us, who's, who's walking slower, and they don't have the strength that they did from their youth, and everyone else is busy and they're walking along, they're probably frustrated, they say, well, this, this person's in my way, they're moving too slow, but you slow down for that person. You take time, even just a minute, your precious time, you give it to them, and you show them that they're important. You show them that they are, they are your neighbor. That is giving sacrificially like the Samaritan did. Time is the one thing that we cannot buy back. You can buy back pretty much everything you own, but time, once it's gone, time is gone. And we give our time to the things that we love, so when you give someone the time that you would normally spend on yourself, that's giving sacrificially. And when you give someone your time, you create a connection or you strengthen a connection between another person. And this century, we're actually losing that type of human connection. 2,000 years ago, the religious elite were blinded by their duties and their laws. Um, the people were blinded by prejudice and centuries-long hatred. And in our century, we're starting to lose human connection in different ways. And in the 21st century, and Kristen and I were talking about this last week, when someone loses a spouse, there's a tendency after the funeral is done and the weeks have passed to just send a text, hey, I'm thinking of your brother, I'm, I'm praying for you, sister. Rarely does someone pick up the phone and call and talk to the grieving family or set aside an evening to visit with them and spend time talking because life is so busy. Life is filled with tweeting and posting and watching YouTube instead of building and strengthening the human connection with somebody. And we're, we're wasting time on things that don't matter in eternity. And, and another thing the Samaritan did was that he involved others in his ministry to this injured man. Um, so the people in the inn, when they, when seeing the Samaritan come in with this injured man, they must have thought, this is the strangest sight I've ever seen. These two guys should be trying to kill each other because the hatred was that deep. Saying, Why is he wasting time on this guy? Why don't just... 
leave him on the side of the road or, or just take care of him. Put him, out of it, put, him, put him out of his misery. Why is he carrying him up to a room, staying up all night, and now in the morning we see this guy paying for the guy's room? Which one of us wouldn't be inspired by that example? Like maybe the innkeeper who has absolutely no morals at all sees the sight happening and he starts to question his own life. Or maybe the prostitute who's working at the inn sees a Samaritan caring for this enemy and she questions her life as well and instead of dealing with clients, she decides she's going to help nurse this guy back to health. So you see how love spreads. One man choosing to give his time to care just like the Lord Jesus Christ cared and he sets an example that potentially inspires others. And the Samaritan does all of this, and in the end, we actually don't even know who he is. He didn't do it for fame. He didn't do it for recognition or for bragging rights if they had any type of social media back then. That was probably like standing in the town square and bragging. He did it out of love. And unlike the lawyer in our lesson last week who just fades away in Scripture, and most likely never gained eternal life, this unknown Samaritan traveling down the road to Jericho sets an example that must never be forgotten by us Christians in the 21st century. And so I'll just leave you with three questions. So the first is, is are you properly prepared for the road ahead? So you may have just started your journey as a Christian or you may have been walking this road for a few years or a few decades. And there's still a lot more road to go, especially if you woke up this morning. Your journey is not over. And we're all going somewhere in life. We're all still pursuing dreams, and we're all still moving towards goals. But the road ahead is filled with unexpected dangers, and it will be filled with unexpected, uh, unexpected setbacks and unexpected struggles. And some of us set out, we're unprepared, and we instead should have been prepared and should have planned ahead. And some of us get caught up in the thrill of the journey that we don't see that it's going to be a difficult walk. And there are those on the road, whether humans or supernatural beings, who will do their best to drag us off that road, um, that road that's leading us to our ultimate destination, which is eternal life with our Creator. So we have to be prepared always, not just for the setbacks and the breakdowns, but also for the things that are hiding in the shadows and the caves that are off that road, wanting to tempt you to stop for a bit, wanting to tempt you to step off the road so that they can take you with them into the darkness off, that's off the road. So be prepared with the word of God that comes from personal study of the Bible and check your course against God's word. Second question. Is your faith just a religious routine or is it an internal struggle? So many people will put religious works over compassion and will often use our jobs or hobbies or household chores as an excuse or as a barrier to feeling compassion for others. And by their actions, the priest and the Levite both show that they neither loved God nor loved their neighbor. And according to the heart of God's law, neither of these men could claim any type of inheritance to eternal life. And th this is not and has never been a call to perfection because that's something that we can never achieve in this life. But it is a call to check our lives daily to see if we are being loving and being compassionate and being merciful and being forgiving towards others who are in distress. We all fall short of God's standards and that's why we need grace. And that's why we must preach the cross of Christ to ourselves every single day to remind us that we fall short 
and to remind us that there's grace if we repent and we humble ourselves. And the Holy Spirit is our reality check whenever we encounter someone who may or may not genuinely need help. So listen to him. He's the one who causes that internal struggle within you, like when you pass by someone and, and sometimes you don't feel that tug inside your heart and sometimes you do. And that's the Holy Spirit working in you to do something, to take action. The Holy Spirit urges us to choose self-denial over selfishness. And the final question, will you spare the time? So ultimately, what the priest and the Levite didn't do was dedicate time to the injured man. The priest didn't have time to spare for the injured man. The Levite stopped to look, but decided not to give any of his time to the injured man. And the Samaritan interrupted his life that day to help the man. And so the call to love our neighbor is a litmus test for all Christians. This is how we Christians test the quality of our relationship with God. Because if we're lovers of self, which the Apostle Paul warns us that people will be in the last days, then we cannot be lovers of God. And how we treat our neighbor who has a desperate need, whether it, the neighbor is family, whether it's friends or a stranger, that actually shows that our love for God is actually a truth or a lie. So we were all God's enemies before Christ came to save us, but we often forget that God loved us before we were born. So none of you is worthless to God. Jesus died for us because he loves us, so you are all worth dying for. And the Holy Spirit counsels us with a continuing love. You are all worth living for. And when we get into trouble, when the car breaks down, when we've bounced a check or realize that the fridge is empty or we've lost someone or our home has been burglarized or we make mistakes at work and suddenly we're unemployed, we never say to ourselves, I'm not worth it. So you are worth helping, and so is your neighbor. So there, there's a cyclical pattern here. There's a pattern of love for others is proof of being loved by God and others. A pattern of extending mercy is proof of being shown mercy. A pattern of forgiving others is proof that you've been forgiven. So keep the cycle going as you walk through this difficult road of Christian faith. And you'll discover, actually, as you're walking on that road, that you're not alone, that you're going to be in the, companies of, in the company of neighbors on your way to your own Jericho.